Today on CityCast DC, everyone, everyone is talking about the $100 metro subsidy that might be coming our way, at least for those of us who are DC residents. Uh, and I'm here with audio producer Julia Karen and Washington Post reporter Michael Bryce Sadler to chat about that, as well as about the Barry Farms redevelopment and the best ways to celebrate the Jewish High Holy Days. Today is Friday, September 30th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. All right, so topic one, at least in people I'm hanging out with, is uh, Metro cards. And the deal is this. There uh, is a proposal in the D.C. Council. It's passed through a committee and it will probably become law because it has a supermajority of co-sponsors that would give a $100 a month Metro card subsidy to uh, D.C. residents. That is to say, you could get your own Metro card and somehow you would get the number of that card to the officials. And once a month, $100 would show up on that card and you could use it as you like. It's not like you could bank $1,200 a year, Damn. unfortunately. <laughs> that was going to be my plan. Uh, you have to use the 100 within a month. So if you use like $12 in that month, an extra $12 will pop back onto your card at the beginning of the next month. So you'll never have more than 100 bucks at a time, courtesy of the taxpayers. But you will have something. The money side of it is that uh, property tax revenues came in better than expected this month. $500 million in unexpected money DC got this year. And so they think they can afford it. It uh, puts some money into the metro system, which needs it. Uh, the metro system, is, as you may have heard, has had some challenges lately. Many of them existed in the before times, but the, the biggest, starkest one is that with so many people working from home, the ridership remains way, 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 way down. So this would, in theory, give a little Benny to the metro system, get some riders on it, help uh, with the cost of living in the district. This proposal looks like it's going to happen. I'm very excited to be splurging money on taking a bus like two stops because I can. Fair enough. But one thing I would want from this is I would want the money to roll over. Because I don't know how much you all spend on the You are already asking for more. I am. It's $500 million. It's a lot of money, right? Like, think about it. Well, no, no, no. Hold on. They got an extra $500 million. This is like a a bite out of that. They're not spending the entire extra $500 million sending Julia on the metro. Listen, but think about it. If you give people 100 a month, I don't know how much you all spend on like the metro per month. I would say I'm probably maybe in the $30 range. Maybe. That's $70 that's going to waste potentially per a lot of people. So you're you're wasting and losing that money. If you roll it over, then people can use it and stock it up, etc. Use it for whatever they need it to use it for. Take as many saving buses. saving it for a rainy day? Sure. Take it, save it for a rainy day. I mean, like, why not? Save it for a couple of days where you know, like, wow, I have to use the blue orange, the blue yellow, or whichever one is currently under construction. It's probably all of them. If anything, I would want them to take that money and use it towards either longer services, right? Go actually back to like midnight or 1 a.m. or run buses later. Like I studied abroad in London. They have night buses. They run all night long. I would much prefer that if that money went to that. Or finally, like, Use some of that money to speed up some repairs, right? So, Michael, you are the you're the one person on this call who works for a 
outfit that requires you to be in the office a certain number of days a week. That's true. Um, although as part of my job covering DC, a day in the office could be anywhere in the city in theory. I'm not doing my job if I'm glued to my desk. So no, no, uh, there's lots of stories in the newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> not the ones that I like to tell on a podcast. But, um, you know, for the most part, I think some of the chatter that you've seen around this proposal is exactly that. Like, why not just put the money directly into improving the system? The thought process here seems to be, let's try to do both. Let's incentivize more people to use the rail system. Let's earn that trust back. Let's earn that ridership back. Let's, you know, make Metro really good and people get excited about it with uh, this new uh, little stimulus they have through this benefit and hopefully everything gets better ridership goes up metro service can improve and we can get back to something that people across the city can be really proud of do you guys think that the the problem for metro is 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 riders thinking it's too expensive or not not wanting to spend the money is is that the reason people are staying off metro it seems to be more so that people don't always find it to be reliable. And right. there's a lot of reasons why that's the case, as, as you all know. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think it might be a little bit column A, column B. Like, I think for some people, cost is prohibitive because it is a cost per stop. Other metros across the country and abroad, it's a flat rate of like, say, $2, no matter how many stops you're going. Or like in London, they do zones. So like, if you stay in a certain zone, it only costs a flat amount. If you go outside that zone, it costs a different amount. So I think part of it for some people, yeah, if you've got to commute all the way from like Glenmont or Wheaton or somewhere way but those out there. People, those people don't get no cards, man. Good point. That's true. That is true, right? So it, who, who does it incentivize, right? Does it incentivize the people who are far away and really need that money to commute into town? Or does it incentivize the people like me who are already living here to just spend more money on the metro and deal with the, you know, 20, 25-minute waits, single tracking, et cetera? because I know it's going to be cheaper than an Uber or a scooter at night. Well, one population that has been talked about as part of this is the so many service workers who were on the front lines of the pandemic, who didn't really have a choice to work from home. They were still taking the metro and they were relying on public transit more than anybody. So this is almost, you know, in a, in a hat to tip to them to basically say, look, we recognize what you guys have been through. We want to make sure that you guys continue using our rail system. And we, we want to make it easier for you to do that. So like Julia, in the case you pointed out, if someone has to trek across the city and spending a lot of money, we're going to help subsidize that a little bit. No, the benefits don't roll over, but still a hundred dollars is a hundred dollars. The challenge for a lot of people, I think is, um, you know, like if you go in the DC Metro on new year's Eve, like you don't see anyone in tuxedos, you know, people are not, the people in Washington do not, they don't typically take Metro out to socialize. They may take it to like a big concert or something where it's going to, where parking's going to be a, a problem. And you can say, well, like, who cares about people who, like, they don't need any help, people who have tuxedos for a party. But the, the challenge we have is that a lot of service workers and a lot of the economy has switched to not being a nine to five situation. So people who are coming back from jobs in the hospitality industry, or something, cleaning office buildings very late at night. These people are disadvantaged by the way Metro is just the same as your party goer is because it's not a system that runs particularly well in off hours. Uh, 
I guess the theory is that putting money into the system, even if it is putting money in behind people getting free rides, that still puts money into the system that could, in theory, free them up to improve some of those later services. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's really about how can DC get people back onto the metro. Ridership has been struggling. Putting money directly in their pocket to use the system is, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I think it will be interesting to look at this months from now after it's implemented in terms of how much is ridership going up? Like who who's taking advantage of this benefit? Are we seeing the same people ride the metro or more people, you know, Mike, in your in your example, like, am I going to take the metro out to socialize? Am I going to opt for a, to use the metro and my free benefit over a potentially expensive ride share? I'd be really curious to see what this actually leads to. Oh, it's an interesting mix because also it's not like the cost of rideshare has stayed static. That's gone up. Michael, what's your commuter situation? How do you get to work? How do you get around town? I walk to work. You walk. I walk. Yeah. What good are you, man? The dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm either walking or I'm I'm driving most likely to some area of the city where the mayor's giving a press conference. or, or But I like to walk downtown. I live in Shaw, so I'm not too far away. Maybe DC Council should have a subsidy for the soles of your shoes. Now, now you're talking. Now you're talking. And I would incentivize new shoe stores <laughs> in Washington. It would be a great, the virtuous cycle. All right. So we have a, a segment we call the bigger picture, where we take something that is in the news that people may have heard of, but maybe not understand the full context of and why it matters. There's been a lot of talk about the redevelopment of Barry Farms, which is an East of the River DC neighborhood, uh, historically uh, uh, poor, historically tough. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, there's a pretty ambitious, um, plan for it, um, which, um, Michael, you've covered a little bit. Um, do you want to tell us about it? Yeah. Um, just to, to take over where you left off, like you have a community here in Barry farm that is really central to DC's history and the story of DC. And I don't think a lot of people know about it or appreciate maybe in the way that they should. And I'll even admit that I didn't really appreciate it until, um, you know, in the past week, I've spent a lot of time out in Berry Farm. This is a site that was originally purchased by the federal government in the like 1860s to basically form a community for formerly settled slaves. And the story there is that the residents built everything in the community themselves. Like they would go into DC proper during the day and work and then you know, go out back to Anacostia Berry Farm at night and literally constructed the houses and buildings by candlelight at nighttime. Frederick Douglass Jr. was an early resident there. And you had this self-reliant community because of its distance from the rest of the city that really formed this bond with each other and became a source of power, especially for this early Black community in D.C., and then in the 1940s, the government took over part of that land to build public housing, but the community still blossomed. It was really an epicenter for activity during the civil rights movement, school integration fight, DC's companion case to Brown versus Board of the Education uh, was kind of born there. And then you also have the junkyard ban that formed that helped boost GoGo's popularity as well. Uh, but then you go into the 2000s and what became known as the Berry Farm dwellings, those public housing units were just in really bad shape. Crime is high. The condition of the housing was really poor. And in the early 2000s, DC came up with this plan essentially to try to transform the site into a mixed use development. Wait, can you explain a mixed use development just for, for people who aren't geeky like me? About sure, it? sure. <laughs> yeah, now that's a very geeky term. Basically, you have a mix of housing. So some might be subsidized, some might be 
workforce housing, just it's not all public housing. It would be for all types of people, basically, to try to improve the conditions of public housing, to try not to have such isolated uh, quadrants or sectors where there's just this uh, intense poverty, to try to make it more of a community where you have different people of different incomes. So that's that's the goal, at least, and that was the plan. But um, again, that was in the early 2000s, and it was just this week that uh, Mayor Bowser finally broke ground on starting that redevelopment improper. But the tension here really comes from the fact that to do this, all of those people who were living in the Berry Farm public housing units were basically told you have to you have to get out so we can oh, like sheesh. raise this and yeah. build new housing units. But this is a community again. I talked about some of the history where a lot of the residents weren't interested in moving or. You know, if they agreed, yes, our housing conditions are really bad, it'd be great for you to improve them. There was just such a distrust that they would actually be able to come back or what would it look like when they come back or when. And those concerns remain. But this week, DC took the first step to basically fulfill that commitment. They have at least broke ground on the first building where the majority of residents who will live there are theoretically seniors who were displaced and now are being offered a chance to return to these new buildings. So there's like a long and baleful history here in DC of oh, we're going to we're going to redo this poor neighborhood and and all y'all will be able to come right back the minute we're done and then you know oops we lost track of everybody or people somehow you know got left out and didn't get to come back and i think there's a lot of suspicion of that with the you know fairly good historic reason for that suspicion definitely i mean it in a lot of ways it is the story of dc right right like longtime residents displaced being priced out in this case you have an effort that on its face is good to improve their housing conditions but again People have to move. They have to relocate. They're scattered across the city. They're saying goodbye to their neighbors. And what is it going to look like when they come back? They have really no idea. So there was a fight, um, you know, in the you know 2014 onward, you had really intense community meetings. You had screaming matches. You had a lot of resident advocacy, the same type of advocacy you saw uh, throughout Berry Farms history um, of residents a, fighting for the right to return, and B, just asking for transparency and clarity around the process, and for fighting for a portion of Berry Farms to be preserved as is as a historic landmark, uh, which uh, some of the tenants were able to do, although it's just five of the buildings that originally existed. I think initially they had asked for 72 to be preserved, and five are remaining. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of that, as well as all this new development pops up around it. Um, this first building is supposed to be completed, I think, by 2024, and then the rest of the development is supposed to be done by 2030. Uh, so this is going to be a long haul. So is there like a guarantee from the D.C. government that says, hey, we're sorry for displacing you. We're going to move you back into this area. You get first choice of housing, et cetera. Is there like any guarantee from them to kind of assuage the fears of the people who are in that community? That was the promise. And I think even that promise left a lot of people really hesitant. It's like, I hear you saying this, but I don't trust you. But on Monday, when DC officials came and did this groundbreaking, you heard probably three or four people reiterate this promise. You will come back. You know, you are invited to come back. You will be prioritized. We'll accommodate whatever your family looks like now and try to make this as seamless as possible. The city says they've kept track of where everybody is. Granted, of course, some people have 
quite literally passed away in the time that this has taken place. So no, not everybody will return and not everybody wants to return. Some people have moved and it's been several years and they may have found an accommodation that's better or that they like and they don't want to leave. But I, for others, I think they'll take advantage of the opportunity and that'll be interesting to follow what this looks like for them. So what are the, besides having, I guess, mixed incomes, because some of it will be straight up public housing and others will be market rate. What are some of the things they are doing to have it not revert to this fairly grim circumstance that has been the modern era for Barry Farm? I mean, there's supposed to be a retail component, and I think there are pretty robust plans for what this future Barry Farm will look like. It's it's not supposed to be a situation where you can look at it and tell, oh, this is a neglected public housing complex, which is what it looked like before. They want people to be able to live here of all different backgrounds and income levels uh, and feel proud to live there. So it's really this effort to try to break up pockets of poverty in the city under something called the New Communities Initiative. And it's so Berry Farm isn't the only public housing process that a uh, public housing complex that is going to go through this process as DC tries to break up this concentrated poverty. Will it continue to have the same name after it's all done? Yes, it's it's still a Berry Farm community. There's a Berry Farm Recreation Center. That legacy is not going to go away. Yeah, no, I just I wonder how much of the like literally as a marketing matter, the name is that, you know, you're thinking, well, I've, you know, I've made it, I've got some money in my pocket and I don't want to be thought of as living there because anyone who's under about 50 or 60 is going to have a single and generally not flattering association. I mean, that's an interesting point. It's, I do, again, because this is a story, I think not enough people know. I'm wondering, you know, by the time this is all finished in 2030, you know, the people who are potentially moving in Southeast could look a lot different. A lot of the development oh, yeah. that's happening in rest of the rest of the city is moving eastward uh, into Anacostia. The mayor also was at the celebration for the latest grocery store east of the river. There are maybe about five east of the river. The rest of the city is like 30 plus grocery stores. So development is coming, but it's slow. But the hope is that you won't be able to just, you know, kind of have this common reframe. Oh, it's it's. You have disadvantaged communities east of the Anacostia, you know, outcomes are worse over there. That's been the story for a long time. And I think uh, everyone in the city wants to see that change. All right. Thank you. Julia, you're going to tell us about the holiday season, about particularly eating this holiday season. Talk to us, my friend. I mean, what goes better together than holidays and eating? Am I right? So it's the Jewish High Holidays. So it's Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, it's basically leading up to the new year in the Jewish calendar. Uh, you spend the days atoning and repenting for grievances of the last year. It's basically a time of reflection. When I was growing up, I thought I could get out of school by going to temple. We went to Aras Israel. Uh, and then I realized I had to actually fast during the day. And that did not make young me very, very happy. Normally, I would celebrate with my family for the high holidays. I'd celebrate with my aunt. But she is out of town next Wednesday. Next Wednesday is Yom Kippur. So now I have to figure out, all right, where am I going to get brisket from? Where am I going to get apples and honey from? Where am I going to get my breakfast from? And it turns out across DC, there's a bunch of places to do this. Local bagel stores, so like Bethesda Bagels, Call Your Mother will have platters of like lox, cream cheese, capers, onions, bagels, all that kind of stuff. My personal favorite and the one that I'm partial to uh, is Bread First. I love their challah. It is pillowy. It is light. It is the best. They also do a whole like meal spread for it. I think it's for like $65. So if you don't feel like cooking a brisket, 
for three hours, like our ancestors did, you could hypothetically just run to bread first and grab it yourself there. Uh, yeah, I'm very, very excited about some of the new options for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. The Jewish or Jewish very heavy emphasis food on options <laughs> in Washington has radically improved, if I, am I not mistaken? No, I, I think it's true. And I think you're kind of seeing that as a reflection of at least my generation kind of questioning what religion they belong to. Like I, growing up, my mom is ex-Roman Catholic and my dad is Jewish. So like I refer to myself as a cashew, like as a Catholic Jew, which I don't know that I've heard anyone else refer to themselves as who grew up in a, a family that had a mixed religious household. And so I think you're seeing a lot of people, millennials, maybe even Gen Zers kind of figure out, okay, like, do I subscribe to a certain religion? Which one do I feel kind of best matches me instead of being indoctrinated to a certain level? And the other thing I would say is, Jewish food is just really good, man. We got noodle kugel. We got challah. We got brisket. <laughs> we got latkes. Man, we get latkes all year round. It's literally just hash browns. It's a puck of hash browns. Why do we not have that all year round? Like, I get the symbolism is supposed to be, like, the thing and the primary driver of it. However, I would eat latkes all year round. I'm a big fan. You can get them all year round at Call Your Mother. But, yeah, like, in front of my apartment is Sababa. They have Rosh Hashanah-themed menu, so there's, like, tons of apples and honey because the whole point is you signify having a sweet new year after having a hard and rough go of it for however many years you've been on Earth. So, yeah, I'm really excited. If you're only going to go to one Indian-owned Jewish food restaurant this year, <laughs> it's Sababa. Have you have you decided on where you're going to source all of your food from? Or are you still Ooh, figuring that out? Good question. So, I know I'm cooking brisket because I have a recipe, and it's really good, and it's my tried and true. I might have to swing to Bethesda Bagels to get bagels. I don't eat lox, which I know is like the most least Jewish thing about me, even though I'm Jew-ish. Again, heavy emphasis on the ish. Uh, so I might have to go get bagels. I can't bake bagels. I'm not good at it. I've tried it once. It was a disaster. I have a friend who's coming over who is going to try her hand at babka. And if you've ever seen videos of babka, it's basically like hollow dough almost. And then you braid it and you proof it. It's like if you've ever seen Great British Bake Off, it's kind of like that. People, Paul Hollywood is going to come to my apartment and be like, it's unapproved. It's overproved. <laughs> The Great Yiddish Bake Off. The Great Yiddish Bake Off. Paul Hollywood, come to my apartment. Great Yiddish Bake Off. I am personally inviting you. Come hang. Come have some holla. Come have some babka. No matzah, though. Wrong holiday. I would watch Just that show. I would watch yeah, it. I would you too. might get a handshake, too, if you're lucky. We could get a handshake. <laughs> Paul Hollywood, Great Yiddish Bake Off. Give us a handshake for our attempt at babka. Let's go. All right, on that note, that is all for today here on CityCast DC. Michael Bryce Sadler of The Washington Post, thank you so much for joining us. Please come again. Always a pleasure. Um, our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey, and our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. I'm audio producer Julia Karen. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? Rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back on Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Woo! Fun fact, it's also a Mount Holyoke holiday. It is Mountain Day, which is the best holiday. It's basically, so women's colleges are reared. We would cancel school. Bell would toll a hundred times. You get out of bed. You climb a mountain. You literally climb a mountain. And then you eat ice cream out of a hoodsie on top. So hypothetically, I should be blown off work today. <laughs> <laughs>